On February 23, 2017, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar with Margaret Weir, Professor of Political Science and International Public Affairs at Brown University, titled America's Two Worlds of Welfare. The seminar was moderated by Condelaria Garay, Associate Professor of Public Policy at HKS. This event was part of the Comparative Democracy Seminar Series organized by the Ash Center. So uh, thank you all for coming. Um, the project I'm going to talk to you about today, America's Two Worlds of Welfare, Subnational Institutions, and social assistance in metropolitan America. I have to look at it because I keep changing the title, and that's the latest title. So it's an outgrowth of a, of a larger project that I've been doing comparing metropolitan areas in the United States. And in some ways, this paper was uh, an opportunity for me to answer some questions that kept coming up. I started, I was comparing Chicago, looking at different regions of the United States, comparing Chicago, Atlanta, and Houston. And I could not understand Atlanta. I was like, what, what is going on here? So I began to collect data about um, nonprofit organizations that serve low-income people all across the United States to try to understand in a broader sense what drives regional differences in nonprofit organizations. Uh, how do they um, address poverty? And there was one other thing was uh, I was, um, Someone came to see me from a program called Living Cities. People know about Living Cities. They have, uh, it's a, a, a philanthropic organization that has a lot of money. Some of it's from the government, some of it's from large foundations to invest in different metro regions in the U.S. And the woman who came to talk to me was on the capital absorption team. And so I wondered, you know, what's the trouble of absorbing capital? And she said, you know, some places just we can't, spend our money there. We can't find a way to spend our money there. So it's this set of questions that kind of got me into this uh, uh, with this essentially a paper. So what I want to tell you about today are sort of three things. First, I want to talk about the um, what is the pattern of variation uh, in metropolitan areas uh, uh, in the U.S. Um, what are the causes of these distinctive regional patterns, and what are the trajectories? Are they likely, you know, is the South becoming more like the North and Midwest? Are we seeing some kind of convergence, or, or are there really two separate models going on? And so just to uh, preview what I'm going to say, and I'll say more about this, uh, what I argue in the paper is that in the U.S. we really have two kinds of models for uh, assisting low-income people, of organizational infrastructure for assisting low-income people. The first is what I'm calling a civic-public model that is in the Northeast and Midwest. And I'll, I'll flesh this out more later. I just want to give you sort of the bottom line here. And the second one is a religious-private model where the preference is to deliver services through congregations and uh, for-profit private organizations, and that is more predominant in the South and the West. So let me just briefly kind of say a few things about um, what we, what, what's the literature out there that I'm relating to and how, what I'm saying uh, in relationship to it. 
So one of the things that we do have a, a robust literature on, and it is a growing literature, and I think it will continue to grow, is on um, uh, devolution and uh, spending in the states. So a lot of people over really a pretty long period of time have studied a uh, pattern of variation in spending on social assistance in the states. Um, and one of the things that we know is that it's variable across programs. There's a very nice paper that uh, I just, uh, that came out as a discussion paper by um, uh, uh, Brutch uh, and uh, Janet Gornick and Marshall Myers. Uh, and what they show, they look at nine different programs and show that where the states have the most discretion, that's where you see the most variation in spending, right? So where states have discretion, you're gonna see wide variation in spending. Um, and this matters because uh, services and infrastructure that serve low-income people, this is the latest sort of data from the Urban Institute, their estimate is that 65% of human service uh, nonprofits, that their revenue is from public dollars. So um, what I wanna argue uh, here is that spending uh, is important, but it's only one dimension of uh, providing social benefits, and that by themselves, spending doesn't tell us very much about the kind of configuration of organizations that provide support. And those organizations, I would argue, matter, uh, and they matter in part uh, since welfare reform 20 years ago. Um, uh, there is less and less cash assistance in the United States, and more of that money is spent on services. So uh, how are the organizations that deliver services uh, actually uh, set up? And in looking at the organizations, I think you also get a better sense of um, the politics uh, of the issue. How are the organizations connected to uh, local governments, how are they connected to state governments? And if you just look at spending alone, which most of that literature does, some of it runs regression and finds sort of causes of different spending, but it doesn't give you any flavor of, uh, of the politics and the organized politics around, um, around this kind of spending. The other reason I think it's useful to look at kind of organizational configurations is that there may be feedback effects from the organizations to the spending. So there's a significant literature on how uh, large nonprofit organizations engage in advocacy and that where you have that dynamic, you tend to have more spending. It's usually a chicken and egg. Those, the articles I've seen are, are fairly chicken and egg in terms of what comes first. But there's certainly kind of virtuous relationships that get built up so that spending itself may be in part a function of what kind of organizations are out there. That may be particularly the case as more federal grants are competitive grants, and you won't get that money unless you uh, actually have the capability to apply for it. So, so for all those reasons, and, and one other, and I don't look at this in this paper, but kind of the feedback effects on the people who are beneficiaries of the program. Some sociologists have written about um, machine CBOs, so machine community-based organizations, and they basically function like old 
style political machines where they run on patronage and your state legislator pulls down a, a bunch of money for your neighborhood and then the people who benefit who send their kids to the child care center go to the health care center all uh, operate uh, uh, to help reelect that guy so uh, the the state legislator so there's literature on that so there's probably feedback effects so it seemed to me that getting a handle on what are the organizations and how might they fall into distinctive configurations would be a good idea. So this gets me into the literature on what people call the delegated state. Uh, sometimes people call it the shadow state, the submerged state. So there's all this interest in uh, this uh, public functions being carried out by non uh, uh, non-governmental organizations, so, you know, the world of, um, of NGOs. And um, there's really two narratives. I'm just going to say in the American case, there's, you know, there's a big literature that looks way back in American history now to make the argument that America wasn't just a weak state, oh, sorry, but it was a, um, uh, but in fact it accomplished lots and lots of things by having other parties accomplish those functions. So there's a, a growing literature in history and political, kind of historically oriented political science on the role on how the American government got things done through relying on, uh, on third parties. Um, with regard to the area that I'm looking at, which is benefits for low-income people, um, this delegated state really has two uh, kinds of approaches. The first one and this is particularly people that study organizational development, they tell a story of success. And their story is ABCD, that's actually a Boston um, uh, nonprofit that's been here since the start of the War on Poverty, uh, and is a large, successful organization that, um, that serves a lot of low-income people. You see this in people who study community development corporations, housing, the story of success, that we built an infrastructure of uh, intermediary organizations and on-the-ground CDCs that now build affordable housing. So that's one narrative. The other story is the story of, of retrenchment and neoliberalism. And so, so by that story, uh, handing off state responsibilities to nonprofit organizations is really just retrenchment in disguise because you're just handing the problem over to um, a non-governmental organization, walking away, and then there isn't really any, any way to uh, have more pressure about spending more. So we enter, oh, and I, I should say I wrote this paper with a grad student at Berkeley, who's still a grad student at Berkeley. Um, we enter this and argue that there's two different models, and this is what I flagged at the beginning. So the first one is a civic public model um, that, and uh, Boston would be part of that, um, robust ecology of nonprofit organizations that often have close ties uh, to government. Um, there's limited contracting out to for-profit organizations. And this model is typical in the Northeast, Midwest, and parts of the Pacific West that have a history like the Northeast. So you'll see it in San Francisco as well, to a lesser extent in the um, Seattle area. But San Francisco actually looks very much like a, uh, a East Coast city in this regard. The second model is a religious private model. Uh, weak nonprofit sector, strong support uh, 
of charitable giving to your congregation and the idea that congregations are the appropriate place to assist uh, low-income people. And they also have a growing for-profit sector. Uh, and this is dominant in the South and the Mountain West. So, no, no. Um, phil you'll see I'm going to present an index that where I, I, I tell you where the philanthropic dollars are. But uh, basically, philanthropy is much stronger in the civic um, public model. So, um, so what's are the, so are these two models? You know, it doesn't matter which way you do it. Are they the same? And our argument is that the religious private model is much less well adapted to assist low-income people. And the argument is that uh, if you look at congregations and people, sociologists who have studied congregations and their capabilities of engaging in support for low-income people show that um, this is from Mark Chaves, who does these surveys every five or ten years. And his uh, data uh, shows that even uh, congregations that pride themselves on how much they do, uh, a lot of them engage in social services. So they're an important part of the safety net. But what they do is not very large. Um, for only 14% have um, a staff member who devotes a quarter of their time on charitable activities. So they... Um, a lot of them are doing something, but it's usually small scale, it's not staffed, and it's, uh, you know, charitable, voluntary, person-to-person -person activity uh, that cannot scale up. The second thing is, well, what's wrong with going for profits? And here, uh, I would argue that uh, it's going with for profits has a couple of different problems. Um, for profits are not going to... Um, attract philanthropy to help cross-subsidize activities. Some activities for-profits never want to get involved in. The mentally ill homeless is not a profit-making activity, and um, that's an activity that the for-profit sector has not entered. And um, the second one is that when you have uh, for-profit firms, they don't join broader coalitions around advocacy. Um, uh, their alliances are often with uh, employers or uh, with other kinds of um, groups. They're less likely to join large coalitions of advocates. So, so the argument is that this is a, um, uh, a, a less good and effective model for assisting low-income people. So to get at this, and this is where I'm going to present uh, what we tried to do to measure this is uh, we created an index uh, to try to get a kind of statistical portrait of these different patterns. And so our index, uh, the Metropolitan Institutional Support Index, we looked at 25 different uh, CBSAs. So that's the largest um, uh, kind of measure that you can have of a metropolitan area because, of course, poverty is not just in cities. It's also um, uh, very largely in suburban areas, especially in the Sun Belt. It's in suburban areas. Um, and so we came up with one, two, three, four, five measures. And um, so the first one was looking at nonprofit uh, organizations that serve low-income people. And the, what I'm going to report today is spending 
by nonprofit organizations that serve low-income people. Our data there is from the Urban Institute's uh, National Center for Charitable Statistics. And we looked, and they categorized their data so you can see what functions are uh, the, there, there are. So things like uh, uh, food assistance, homeless assistance, affordable housing, uh, employment assistance, the broad tag of human services, those were all the uh, organizations that we included. And we cleaned the data to get uh, organizations that didn't work in that particular geographic area out of this out of our um, data the second piece we look at our community foundation so community foundations are philanthropic organizations that have a geographical mission so the Boston Foundation in this area um, they're particularly important because they their philanthropic mission and charitable dollars are, are place focused so they're also an asset of place. The second thing we looked at, our a third thing, are federated organizations. So that's things like the United Way. Sort of, it's, it's also kind of like, you know, kind of philanthropy. Um, and these two are important less because they spend a lot of money, but because they serve as kind of organizational nodes within a geographic area. So in the, in the interviews we did, it was pretty common to find out that United Way had been looking out in some suburb in Chicago and found there was a whole uh, bunch of very low-income Latinos and then said to an organization in another place, you should establish something over there. The state is not doing that, but, uh, but it has been typical in our interviews to find that community foundations and federated organizations do that kind of system building. Our fourth measure is uh, an employment measure, how, just how many people are working in the social services sector. And that data was from the economic census. And then the percent of the workforce in public for for-profit and not-for-profit. So we're trying to get a portrait of, um, of, the, of this sector. Oh, wait, I'm going the wrong way. Go ahead, upside down, sir. Um, so we uh, created a metropolitan support index. And so the index is just a very simple way to try to visualize um, all of this information and capture it. And so what we did is that if they were above median on nonprofit social service spending, we get a one. If their assets were uh, uh, above median per person, they get a one. If the federated giving is above median, they get a one. If the percent of private employees, so I can use this, can I? If the percent of private employees um, is, is um, below the median, they get a one. So that's the, the kind of negative category. And uh, total social service sector employment uh, above median, they get a one. And uh, I should say that we normed these uh, per person, but we also earlier normed them per poor person. And there really wasn't that much of a difference, so I'm just reporting the per person uh, data. So, you know, what you can see from this uh, index is that um, places with the fives and the fours, which are kind of the highest categories um, that would fit the civic public model. So the idea is that 
uh, places that score high are uh, in the civic public model are um, heavily located in the northeast. San Francisco's very high there. Um, uh, northeast and Midwest. And if you take a look at the bottom, um, the ones that are ones and zeros, these are heavily uh, sunbelt places. So there seemed to be a clear regional pattern when we look at this. And then there's some places in the middle. So what I want to do is talk to you about, uh, first about how we thought about explaining why you get a clear regional pattern and then come back to the places in the middle and kind of ask, well, what do they tell us about how, um, how these patterns might be changing or developing? So let me um, say a little bit about our arguments for why you see this distinctive pattern. And the first kind of strongest part of the argument has to, is a kind of a policy legacies argument that has to do with distinctive histories of immigration, religion, uh, and the relationship of those to local government, as well as uh, racial, uh, racial segregation. So there's increasing interest in the role of religion in studies of the welfare state, comparative studies of the welfare state have started looking at how different kind of religious legacies uh, make a difference for, the for support for social insurance or support for the poor. And so one of the uh, interlocutors that I am thinking about here is um, Sigrun Kahl, who is at uh, Yale. And she's argued that there are really sort of three models of, well of assistance to the poor in particular. And the United States fits uh, as in most comparative studies, the United States fits the bad model. We're the Calvinists who think everyone should have personal responsibility and, um, uh, and, and individual, very individualized approach, and that if you're poor, basically, it, it's your fault. So I'm going to say something about that. Um, uh, so I want to highlight religion, both beliefs and infrastructure, uh, and the timing of urban growth. So let me, let me go to uh, religion. Overall, I would agree with the argument if you look at the, I mean, actually, if you look at the debates today, of course, there is this Calvinist influence. And I just was looking at a Paul Ryan tweet about how you have to exercise personal responsibility in your health care. And that's why we needed to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. But we also are a country of uh, religious variation and a country of a lot of uh, authority that is delegated to uh, local and state arenas, especially when it comes to dealing with the poor. One of the things that we know about uh, the New Deal is that programs for low-income people, the non-social insurance programs, lots and lots of state, they were federal state programs, delegation to the states. And the states, in fact, are very different, and this is just gives you a little bit of a sense of it. Uh, the blues are where um, Catholics are, um, more than 50% of the population, and the dark pink are the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the second largest religious body in the U.S. That's uh, an evangelical um, uh, category. So our argument is that in the Northeast and the Midwest, 
you saw uh, religious competition. And religious competition has been, is often seen as sort of the driver of how religions operate. Uh, and that religious competition meant uh, lots and lots of organizational creation. So the Protestants would create an organization to save children who were Catholic children or Jewish children. And then those religions would establish their own organizations to save the children from the Protestant elites. So this is a very, very typical kind of thing. You think of it as hospitals, charity organizations, society. All this, this is starts really in the, the last, this sort of progressive era on. That's when these organizations get started. And politics and um, religion, religious leaders, and these religious organizations establish close ties in the Northeast and the Midwest. Anybody? That's a... Uh, Abe Beam, who was mayor of New York in the 1970s, uh, hugging the cardinal. And you can always find lots of, there's actually, I, I could like spend the rest of the time with pictures of uh, Catholics hugging politicians, uh, but I won't. And, and this is a rabbi with uh, Mayor LaGuardia. So very close relationships um, of politics and religion that, that begins from early in the 1900s and continues on. So these organizations at the local level, these organizations have already established close ties. There are also organizations that tend to be organized as in a federated way. So Catholic Charities has uh, a national organization and it has these uh, diocesan organizations. It's a big centralized organization. Mainland Protestants are typically organized in this way too. So they also then are well prepared to get money from the federal government when it starts to send money to organizations that are non-governmental organizations, particularly in the 1960s and in the 1970s when sort of the floodgates of federal monies open for social services. These organizations uh, are ready to stand up and do business with the federal government. The story for uh, the South and the West is very different. Um, they do, did not have this uh, level of immigration that you saw in the Northeast and Midwest. So you don't have this kind of religious competition that's uh, leading to lots and lots of organizational creation and relationship to um, uh, governments. Uh, instead, you have uh, Jim Crow. And um, this is a picture of the neighborhood union. There were black uh, social service organizations, but they were really just funded from within the community. Um, you didn't have at all the kind of relationships of government uh, in the South that you had uh, in the Northeast and Midwest. So you have a very kind of impoverished civic sector in the South because of its racial history and because of its religious history. So Zooming ahead to the future, um, one question is, and, and let me just, I had it in the other slide. The other thing I would highlight about evangelicals, they, they do not have this kind of um, strong federated kind of organization. They have preferred to do their charity for poor people through congregations. Really wasn't until the 1980s. 80s that they were happy about taking money. And if you've seen about 
Jerry Falwell Jr. and how much money Liberty University has from government. They're now very happy to take money. But when it comes, they don't have the infrastructure to take money to support low-income people. There's no evangelical equivalent to Catholic Charities or Lutheran Family Services, these big, big organizations. So charitable choice, which was enacted under, first under, um, it was actually first under Clinton as part of welfare reform, and then continued into Bush, and, and Obama continued it too. The idea was to try to lure um, evangelicals and all kinds of churches to do more, be more engaged in social services, because the idea was, you know, there's going to be less cash assistance, and now people, uh, churches should get involved, and they could really help people. Most of the research. Um, shows that has made very little difference. Um, uh, m most white evangelical congregations have not taken up this opportunity to have uh, federal money. One of the things about taking uh, that money is that it prohibits proselytizing. The bottom line is that they see as their primary mission to proselytize, and to the extent that it intervenes with that primary mission, they don't really have any interest. So they have created some social service coalitions. There's a little bit of movement, but the idea that I think the um, religious, some of the religious right had that suddenly there would be all this money pouring into religious organizations and they would be delivering services, because of this, um, it has not happened. It may change uh, in the near future. Uh, but a big exception are black churches. Black churches really took advantage of charitable choice. Um, and here's some data from some of the studies where people have been trying to make sense uh, of this. Um, uh, Michael Leo Owens did a survey, found that in Atlanta, for example, black churches were five times more likely to pursue um, government funding than white congregations. But a huge argument uh, that to suggest that this is not going to transform the Southern uh, model is that many black churches have very limited capacity. They may be storefront churches, and people know this study by, um, about Boston by um, the guy at Chicago. That's a really great uh, uh, ethnographic account of uh, churches in Dorchester, and many of them are storefront churches, and they basically have limited capacity. So, so Opening and having federal efforts to promote this activity uh, has led to some additional funds in the hands of black churches, but there too there's inherent limited uh, capabilities because of the organizational capacity of these congregations. So I've sort of painted a picture here of because of different histories related to religion and immigration and race and different relationships of organizational creation and then connection to the state, very different kinds of capacities. The other factor that I would highlight is also the timing of urban growth. So cities in the Sun Belt typically really took off in their growth in the 1980s and 90s. And this was a period when they have competition with for-profit providers. So when the nonprofit sector grew in this earlier era in cities in the Northeast and Midwest, there was no competition from uh, 
uh, from private providers. So metros in the uh, uh, south and in the in the you know, western Sun Belt are faced with the uh, challenge of expanding numbers of low-income people, expanding populations, and it is. Um, uh, in some ways, it's just a lot easier to turn to a for-profit corporation because they're right there. You can do the contract, and you you know you're not going to create this capability all at once. So, this to me um, suggests that um, the Sun Belt is likely to remain quite distinct in the kind of model that it has. That uh, when it expands in spending. Uh, it is very likely to go for for-profit rather than not-for-profit, um, and that to the extent that it uh, does things through uh, congregations and communities, uh, it is not going to create a broad redistributive capability, which happens if you go through the public sector. So it's more likely to be um, uh, a more inward-looking uh, and racially segmented approach if it's uh, heavily delivered through congregations. So let me go to the last part of the talk and just talk about, well, what are the trajectories? How can we think about, are these mo models likely to be stable, or are they likely to uh, converge in some sense, or, or how can we think of them? And so what I want to do is tell you a little bit about changes in nonprofit spending over time in these different metros, consider how external actors might be influencing what gets done, and then look at for-profit sector growth. And um, so do I have? Yeah. So let's go back to the places here that, um, that were in the middle, Tucson, Seattle. Detroit, San Diego, Denver, St. Louis, Miami. So these places, in a way, you could think they don't fit the model uh, because they're kind of in the middle. And I think the answer here uh, has to do with the wealth of the metropolitan uh, areas. And so one of the things that we found uh, was uh, a correlation between the rise in per capita income and the rise in nonprofit spending. And so what you're seeing, and this is between 1990 and 2010, what you're seeing is that places like uh, St. Louis and Detroit are falling in, uh, over time in terms of their ability to assist low-income people through their nonprofit sector. And all right, let me show you this one. Um, and this actually gives you the numbers. It's not just the index. Um, and places that have, where, that have seen their income rise, like Tucson, Seattle, San Diego, uh, and even Miami, have seen more spending. Some of the places where income has not risen, Las Vegas, Riverside, uh, uh, Atlanta metro areas, um, you don't see nonprofit spending go. So one, th so one kind of takeaway here is that money does matter in the trajectories. And we may be creating a system where metro areas that are richer have more capacity to assist low-income people and assist more low-income people. And metro areas that are poorer uh, are going to do less for low-income people. So we have kind of a 
a perverse situation where the places that have the most can do the most and the places that need the most have the least. So, so that's one, one factor, and I think that begin, can begin, and it's something to watch over time, can begin to change the models when it comes to nonprofit spending. What about national philanthropy as a change agent? So one of the things I was thinking about, and we tried to think about in this project, uh, is you know, can, are there external actors who can change what's going on? And an earlier version of this paper had a, you know, a plea for what the federal government could do. I'm taking that out now. Because um, I don't think the federal government's going to do it. Uh, so, um, and in fact, the federal government can do a lot. Because if you look at organizations in the Sun Belt that assist low-income people, many of them were created during the War on Poverty, which uh, Desmond King calls a kind of a forceful federalism, where the federal government actually came right in and, and took away the obstacles and made it uh, easier to form uh, organizations that would assist low-income people. That, uh, you know, the federal government's not going to do that. I mean, maybe someday it will, but it's not going to do it in the next four years. So, so one question is, could philanthropy play that role? And you know, philanthropy has played a big role. Uh, Rockefeller and Ford have played a big role in, um, in the uh, affordable housing sector. And I think there, too, uh, there is not a lot of reason for optimism. And, and here I'm relying uh, on a study that was just done uh, where um, they analyzed, it was from the Federal Reserve in uh, Atlanta and in um, Philadelphia, and they analyzed uh, 160,000 grants from major foundations and in community development. And what they found is that they tend to invest in places that have strong nonprofit sectors. So again, it's an example of if you have it, you can build it, and if you don't have it, how do you build it? Um, and of course, you know, when you think about philanthropic uh, goals, it, it is understandable. Part of what they want to do is to, is to promote innovation, to promote um, new ways of doing things, and to, to show that that, that's their value added. I mean, they don't have enough money to substitute for the public sector. But it ends up creating this situation where the places that don't have, there's sort of no there there, and how can you figure out how to get in there and build something uh, to grow? Um, and then finally, the for-profit sector. The for-profit sector grows everywhere. Um, we collected data from uh, 1990 and uh, up until 2010. And it grows at similar rates everywhere. But because um, uh, spending is growing more, uh, but because the, the sector of nonprofits is not growing as much in most of the Sun Belt, what you see is uh, a tremendous uh, growth uh, of the for-profit sector. So in Mountain West cities, you know, nearly half of uh, spending in this area for low-income people is done by for-profit. Uh, organizations uh, still in the north, uh, 18%. But that pressure of for-profits is everywhere, and so that is also something I think is worth watching in all of these places, um, and especially in the Midwest as nonprofits uh, get weaker and public spending is uh, weaker. So I'm going to uh, wind up and say, I mean, my bottom line is that. I think we can still see sort of divergent trajectories 
in uh, in these areas that that there still are virtuous cycles of feedback in the civic public public model, um, but there are significant challenges in the Rust Belt and Rust Belt metros that have um, uh, have you know faced severe economic problems over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, they still have significant resources. If you actually look, I won't do it later, but. Um, they have significant community foundations, you know, and community found local foundations were really important in Detroit to the extent that it has been able to come back. So they still do have some of these resources. They, they, they just have very stressed public sectors. In the religious private model, um, I think, you know, wealth matters. You may see the growth of for not-for-profit capacity in richer of these metros. Um, but in most of them, I do not think you will see very much capability to scale up what it is that they do and that the differences in these um, sunbelt places are likely to endure unless you can get some outside actor who can kind of spark some kind of organizational creation in those places. So my um, non-optimistic conclusions um, are that the, the delegated state in America, it's, it's, it has this, you know, it's very bottom-up, and that bottom-up nature of it means that it's, it's not self-correcting. You know, ideally, you would want to have higher levels of government that could actually do some kind of monitoring to, you know, intervene in certain ways, since these are public these are public programs, public purposes, and people are receiving vastly different things um, because we have such uh, a bottom-up approach to it. Um, and that we'll see uh, the regional variation persisting, uh, except with this um, impact of regional economic growth as we get you know, more and more growth in some places and other places grow down. And I think this, to me, is sort of a question of how much of this is a function of the recession and, and, and how long will that endure, and will some of those Rust Belt places uh, move back up? So that is um, my presentation, and uh, I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much, and I, I can take No, you can. You're in charge. Uh, oh. Hey, you got the southerner in the room. Um, I'm from Atlanta. I work also in the nonprofit sector and in the philanthropic sector. Um, and I honor them. <laughs> I work, yeah, I work in the nonprofit sector in Atlanta. Um, I, I wanted to better understand when you talk about for profit, I was trying to rack my brain for an example of that and what it looked like in the South. And I, uh, short of thinking about how we structure our chambers of commerce, I was having trouble figuring out what you meant by nonprofit. By for-profit. By for-profit. I was thinking of companies, and I have the companies like um, Maximus, um, which is a, uh, you know, it's on the, uh, does, does workforce training. It is a, um, it's on the stock market. Um, Lockheed Martin entered the uh, welfare uh, field right after, uh, in 1996, and now it's, I mean, it's spun off this other organization because they, a lot of what welfare reform is about is about, you know, tracking people. It's kind of like what they do is track people. They don't, kind of what they do.
Yeah, a lot of job centers are, are, are for-profits, yeah. So it's um, child care centers, for-profit child, because child care was a, a piece of what we looked at, for-profit firms that take government money to run child care services. That, that's actually a fairly big one because it's profitable. Does that make sense? Oh, well, I mean, what I saw in Atlanta were, um, uh, was in Gwinnett County, and uh, this suburban county that's one of the most unbelievably diverse places, you know, kind of the way that suburbs have become so diverse. And the thing that interested me there is that there were hardly any organizations at all. And I talked to the one human service organization there. My research assistants talked to this one human service organization there. And what I finally understood is that it's mainly a volunteer organization. They coordinate volunteers. There's a very similar organization in the Chicago suburbs, also affluent suburb in DuPage County. And they were founded around the same time with the idea, okay, there's new need in suburban areas. And that organization has sort of found its place among other organizations like health centers, um, some human services organization. And they have found their place to provide uh, train people to uh, deal with new diverse populations. So what I saw was that in the Chicago area, because there were multiple organizations, a new organization could kind of situate itself in this ecology of organizations and thrive. And I kept trying to understand that other organization in Atlanta, um, uh, in Gwinnett. Uh, and what I realized is that there really there were no homeless organizations there. They finally just got one a few uh, years ago after decades of struggle because there was so much opposition to it because their fear was that black people from Atlanta would come out and go to their homeless shelters. And, you know, of course, those things also exist in, in Chicago, but somehow the nonprofit sector was strong enough that it could create these organizations. The other thing that I will, would, would say to you is that I, was, I read the plan for Gwinnett County, and I got to the part on human services, and it said, we will promote volunteering. And I just, I just thought, this is really different. That, that doesn't comport with your, your sense of it. The city of Atlanta. I think so Gwinnett County is a very different a demographic, B wealth, level of wealth. But what I would say is that there are more poor people in Gwinnett County than there are poor people in Atlanta because Gwinnett County is 900,000 people and Atlanta is 400-something thousand people. So that's why I take this kind of, I mean, that's part of my interest. Okay, you know, maybe you, I mean, that was actually my initial interest and then I, I got onto this was, you know, you kind of, if you've started to create an infrastructure in a city, can it get adapted as low-income people have moved to, to other parts of the metro area. So that was actually my initial interest. And it seemed like places where that nonprofit sector was really strong, all of them have trouble adapting and getting out to suburban areas. That's, that's true everywhere. But you see much more of it in places um, that are not in the Sun Belt. And the trouble with places in the Sun Belt is more of their poverty uh, tends to be in suburban areas. So, so that's, that's how I got interested in that. And also, I mean, you can, you can look at the data.
data I have on Atlanta. You know, the, the community foundation, you know, they, I'm not saying the people in that nonprofit sector haven't tried. I mean, they are, you know, it was really, we interviewed this one woman in Gwinnett a couple of times and she said, they won't listen to me, oh, you know, so it is kind of a tale of, of, of frustration, so. So I'm more of a proponent of the bottom-up welfare approach, I would say, because um, I've seen it fail. The kind of nonprofit-led welfare approach fail so many times because it only addresses one part of someone's need, whereas like a church can take a more holistic approach and has a little bit more leeway. Um, and I'm skeptical, particularly I'm from the Boston area, of community foundations like the Boston Foundation because they tend to identify who they think is um, the answer to the problem, who has no ability to you know, create a system-wide safety net, um, but it kind of weeds out the other more grassroots organizations who might have a more direct line to the people that they need to serve. Um, and I'm thinking of this work specifically, I work on incarceration and how welfare and poverty are connected to violence and how we can kind of change those in order to um, stop our reliance on the criminal justice system. And so I'm wondering if there, either in your study or just in your thinking, is a way to measure that more holistic approach and how that compares to the kind of approach you took? I mean, my argument about that approach, about the approach you're talking about, is more that you can't scale it. Well, if you don't scale, you're not going to, you know, you might help some people, and, that's, and that is, in fact, what congregations do. And it is good. It's an important part of our system. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that it's a bad thing. But I think you need organizations that are big and capable enough of reaching people. And sometimes those organizations, um, you know, they have to manage the complexities of federal funds. There's an organization that got featured a lot in this book, as you saw it, by uh, Bruce Katz and uh, Jennifer Bradley. Uh, it's an organization in Houston. And it is a really great organization. It has learned how to... Uh, take lots of different streams of federal funding and actually run a variety of programs. And, I mean, they argued that they can, like, go into a neighborhood and create, you know, a child care center, a charter school, a, um, yeah, a whole, a whole. But when there's nothing there, we're talking, we're, Right, right. I, I think they actually do. I actually asked her that question once. That you know, do, I think they do talk to the people there. But can the how are the people from the bottom up going to create something that is going to be adequate enough to serve low to serve in in a broad way? I think, uh, to me, that's the question. You know, we've handed off public responsibilities to nonprofit and said, oh well, you know, you can do it. Well, you can do some of it. But you probably can't do it all, right? But who's going to do it then? That's the, that's the argument, is that you, you need to be able to go to scale if you're going to have an equitable welfare state. Right. Go to Houston. Go to Atlanta.
But it's not diversity. It's not about diversity. It's not about diversity. It's just about organizations. It says nothing about what the ability is to help low-income people and how low-income people, what kind of opportunities they might have. You know, I'm not saying, you know, I heard Sandy Darity give this talk, and Boston was like the worst. I mean, you have to, it was about the wealth of black, white, and lots, he got, had lots of different data of, of different groups. And Boston came out, like, the African-American community's wealth was like $18. It was like the worst. And so I'm not saying, I'm talking about an infrastructure of support. There are all kinds of other things that are going on in these places that are creating problems. And some places are more racist than other places. They have worse histories of, of race relations. So I'm not, I'm not discounting that that is important when you get down to the city level. But I would, but I think the federal government has programs to assist low-income people, it relies on local non-governmental organizations through contracting. You want to look at what is that pattern? Who's, who's getting helped? What are the terms on which they're getting support? Where are their holes? Why are there holes? That's the kind of question I'm asking here. So, um, yeah. um, uh, how did you decide about these two models? Was it coming from empirical fieldwork? Yes. And then you tried to make sense of it? Yeah. Or did you have more theoretical vision of potential different models and then you fit, you tried yeah. to fit them with uh, empirical data or both? No, it and, was, and, yeah. and, and the, 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 the other question is, um, was it self-evident to have just two models? instead of three, for example. Did you, at some point, hesitate between two or three or four? I yeah. don't know. And, and, and if yes, why did you right. choose two? And, and right. what was a possible I'm third or fourth? I'm usually a Trinitarian, but, uh, but this time I... So this really does come from the data, kind of pattern detection in the data and trying to make sense of it. Because it... it this sort of started with just collecting data on nonprofit organizations and spending of nonprofits. Then we started to look at, well, you know, if it's done by, this, by the public sector, if it's done by for-profits, then, you, you know, that might be something else. So it kind of gradually started collecting more and more data. So it is a very much a kind of a detection from the pattern. I will tell you that I played around for a while and it's possible that there should be three, that there should be a market individualist that fits places like Las Vegas, uh, the, the um, Phoenix. And I started to, uh, I st and, and it's possible that I would at some point go there, um, but it would, what, I'd, I had to think about how to do that. And I was looking for data on kind of religious contributions to religious congregations versus contributions to um, uh, uh, secular organizations and trying to see, you know, kind of what's the level of community engagement and how religious is it. And I think there's somewhat less of, uh, although the evangelical numbers in, in the Mountain West are still pretty high, 
I'll tell you the one thing I, so, so that's the answer. So I have played around with that, could there be a market individualist approach where there's sort of, there isn't even kind of the religious infrastructure and the idea that we can do things through, the, through a religious infrastructure. It's just a kind of a places that, you know, Putnam would say there's really sort of not much social capital there at all and it's just markets. So, so, so it's possible that, that some of those places should be described that way. Great, that was really interesting. Thanks so much. I have a couple of questions. The uh, first question was whether you see there's any intra-metropolitan variation uh, between urban core and suburban periphery. Um, the other question was um, to the scale of measurement of the model is at a metropolitan level, but that's a level at which the state doesn't really exist in many places. It's fragmented and so that's, I was thinking, um, to what extent or in what ways then is the state, if we break it down into municipal or county or state, playing a role uh, in shaping uh, certain models at a metro scale when the state itself doesn't actually exist at that scale. Yeah. So I think that's related yeah. to the intra. Yeah, and so in this paper, I was really not getting into the intra-metropolitan yeah. differences, um, although that was kind of where I started in trying to figure out uh, Atlanta. Um, and so uh, I think where I would look is at the county level, mm -hmm. uh, because you know the states play a remarkably hands-off role in thinking about um, organizing systems of support at the metro level. Um, and so it's really something that's left in the hands of counties. And I think that's where I would look the most. And that's where I saw, you know, you do see some uh, variation at the county level and, and um, some ability to form closer alliances uh, at the county level. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's where that's where I would look on that. And of course, you see tremendous differences across different parts of the metro area. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing that, and this is why, kind of like, what is your system in the core city? And most of those uh, philanthropic or community foundations, their uh, initial um, growth is in the core city. But they often play kind of a system role of trying to bring, bring groups together and to identify those holes. I mean, I, I said that in the talk, you know, found that it, w it was groups like that that sort of tried to get a more regional perspective. So the strength of those organizations and their capabilities, I would say, is sort of a, in the civic sphere, they probably make a difference in trying to um, uh, fill some of the holes in, uh, you know, out in outlying areas. Well, that was actually, I had a follow-up question, which yeah. was the, uh, the role that then the state plays, if at all, at a county level, if it's not in, if it's partly in funding, and then does it, is it playing, are the, if you were to parse out funding from monitoring quality, then do you think that uh, one model versus the other, that the uh, state authorities are playing a better role at also figuring out where the gaps are and also ensuring that the nonprofit providers are right. sort Doing. of fit for purpose. Yeah. 
I don't know the answer to that, and there's really wide variation. I've, I've seen one paper that looked at the ARA, you know, the um, uh, stimulus money, mm -hmm. and tried to sort out at where, what the states did with that money. Did they give it to nonprofit organizations? Did they delegate it mm -hmm. to uh, counties? And there's just huge variation there, and I don't think there's, I haven't seen like a paper that sorted that out about human services, the different way that states uh, uh, think about whether they're going to send it to a county or whether they're just going to directly contract with a not-for-profit because they do all kinds of different things in that regard. And I haven't seen any anybody that really sorted, maybe you have, uh, I haven't seen anybody that, that sorted through that. But I, what you said about monitoring, I do want to say one thing. The one thing that, and, and, and I don't have it in this paper, but it is uh, my suspicion that many of the places that do the most uh, contracting with for-profits, part of why they do that is the idea that they can save money. And so they will also have low monitoring capabilities, right? They don't. The point is you don't need a strong state because you now you've contracted it out. So in some ways, that's they will have the worst of all worlds because with weak state monitoring capabilities, you're going to have more rent-seeking on the part of the for-profits. And I, I mean, I know you can have it on the part of non-profits as well or just, you know, poor performance, but it does seem to me that from what I've you know, the, the, my reading is that there has been substantial dangers of this kind of rent-seeking with for profits and cherry-picking, that, kind of, that kind of behavior. So that's my fear about the places that do tons of, uh, and, and it's probably the poorer places that do tons of outsourcing, so maybe less to fork profits, or you're maybe less likely to see it in Seattle, but more likely to see it in San Bernardino. And I, I would, I, I actually, I learned this from all these job talks, you know, that you go to. I have uh, a few extra slides here. <laughs> oh, wait, oh, wait, but I hit the wrong way. But, you know, one of the things that I was interested in, is I didn't really end up working it into the paper, was um, the extent of uh, within-state variation. Yeah. And look at, um, you know, look at uh, California. Uh, just a, a huge difference in, you know, Riverside, San Bernardino, their community foundation's $20 per person compared to three ninety in San Francisco. So you see, and then they have this 51% uh, outsourcing to for-profit organizations. So some of these places that are, um, you know, that's when the, those guys came in and they murdered those people in the human resources places in San Bernardino. Having just even looked at these numbers, I said, you know, here's a place that's so diverse trying to really make it and has <laughs> so few uh, resources. So, and, the th and you see also, uh, you know, Dallas is a richer place than Houston. Houston, incredibly diverse. And, you know, it fits the, you know, it fits like, like Atlanta, very, very diverse. But it doesn't have a lot of capability to assist low-income people. Um, What's interesting is places where the cities were founded at almost the same time in the Northeast. I don't have it here, but like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, they ha it's remarkably similar, except Pittsburgh has a big community foundation. So, the, so some of this is related to the uh, timing of, of urbanization. 
Well, I was trying to split that out, the weight of history versus yeah. contemporary politics. Right. So where is the room for contemporary coalitions to be built to allow the city or a city or the metro area, but more likely a particular municipality in the city, to deviate from its historical legacy in order to shift model or change yeah. the model? I, you know, it's really hard uh, to do that because it means kind of putting together a kind of a, a, a really strong civic um, effort. And I had one example in the paper um, that I eventually took out, but it was the case of one of the places that grew the most in terms of nonprofit spending was Salt Lake City. You know, Salt Lake City, lots and lots of charity, but it's all through the church. But there, actually, it may be enough because there's tithing and the church is so, you know, it's just so big and they're so experienced. They had a big homeless problem, and they got the guy who was the head of the Mormon church's, like, distributional network to head their homeless uh, effort. And he had so much authority within the community. They got all this spending from the state legislature, um, and they jumped on their nonprofit spending jumped by like 400 percent. It was uh, th they were the top one, which is why I looked at it. But they started at such a low level that they they don't really stick out here. But that but part of what I was interested in that example is that you know the level of community cohesion. Mm -hmm because of the Mormon church is so unique. Uh, there's no, no other metro, I think, that would have a similar kind of, uh, of community cohesion. So sort of, you know, the case that proves the, whatever, however that goes. Yeah. Right, you know, yes. And, you know, I call it the civic uh, public model, but of course Catholic Charities is Catholic yeah. and Lutheran, Family Services of Lutheran. Um, and basically, that's a story that in the past, they could do whatever they wanted. I mean, probably they still do whatever they want, right? Um, but um, they got money not from the federal government, uh, but from local governments. And she had those close ties that, you know, basically you could do, you know, we're all in it together. You can do what you want. And it isn't until you get to the 19. 60s and 70s when the federal government really kind of pours out money for these kind of purposes but they have already built up these big organizations and you know they love they just love getting government money so um, so they kind of agreed to the terms because it would allow them they already had a big organization it would allow them to grow so there is a timing issue as well but I but I I kind of think it's also in my mind it's essentially the the um, the organizational issue is really big um, that they have these big bureaucracies that they want to support and so they're happy to oblige by the rules uh, whereas these um, evangelicals are just not organized in the same way um, but w one thing that I would say about the contemporary coalitions, too, and just thinking about it, because there is a sort of this issue is, you know, how much of it's just like what's going on in the past and what's, how does that affect what goes on now. 
I mean, part of what effect goes on now is that nonprofit organizations in places where they're strong will block for-profit contracting and will play a big role in, you know, trying to defend the money that's there. So, so that history continues to have an ongoing impact because it kind of determines the, who some of the actors are and what kind of political ties they, they enjoy. Right, kind of what's the feedback on the recipients of different kinds of services. Right, because I, I mean, I'll tell you what I have thought about doing. I hadn't thought about getting the individual data um, to look at the impact on individuals. Um, but, you know, there is some work, um, uh, a study of immigrants in San Francisco that basically argues by uh, one of your classmates. Yeah, um, I can't remember her name. Yeah, um, who argues that immigrants basically use these sort of human service nonprofits to build political power uh -huh. in San Francisco. So the thing I have thought about doing is sort of less the feed, what I have thought about doing, and it would be a survey of nonprofits though, uh -huh. is to try to understand what networks they're embedded in, in different parts of the country. So like, and that actually, the idea, I was talking to someone who said, well the food bank they won't join the campaign to create a state earned income tax credit. Huh. And so thinking about, you know, who are there different networks that connect nonprofits to different kinds of political actors and does that vary systematically or is it kind of basically the same? So oh, that's, that's something that I, I, I actually am pretty much thinking about doing to, to try to get at, at kind of political impact, and it could be they're the same, that they're all, and, and that goes to these kind of criticism. A lot of people hate these things, and I, I, I um, you know, I have questions about how effective they are, are actually doing what they're supposed to do, but I'm interested in them here at least because they're political, can they be political actors, and you know, in some ways they are agents of the state, and are yeah. they fulfilling state yeah. responsibilities, so that's kind of, but so I, I have thought about saying, well, then maybe they're all the same. They're all just are in these networks, and they're reliant on business relationships and on church relationships, congregation relationships, and you know they stay away from labor unions. They stay away from mm -hmm. advocacy groups that want to you know be uh, uh, advocate more broadly for low income people. So I have thought about doing That's that kind of the organizational side rather than the Indeed. impact on individuals. You know, there is this literature that, but it's it's usually case studies, and I don't know how you would get at it, you know, to the extent that they connect people to uh, become active because they're like a political machine. And actually, the thing I would say, there's sort of three cases of those kind of CBOs that have political machines, and I think in all of them, the, the main guys ended up in jail, so I'm not sure it's <laughs> a, a model that we'd want to continue. On uh, you know that's that's a viable model. <laughs> I reckon. Um, so a, a couple things. One, just a comment on the personal experience. On the, this is not really to do with your paper, but on the on the privatized service provision. So Kathy Eden, I think, made this observation. I heard it from David Elwood that um, you know you see H and R Block will give will uh, you know you give them some money off the top of your EITC and they'll do your tax form and. 
we all think that's a ripoff because you could go to a nonprofit and get it for free, many pro bono uh, right. tax filers, right? But evidently, according to David, Kathy says that, that going to H&R Block, that people getting the EITC love it. Yeah. They love the experience because they're getting an experience that's just like what everybody else gets instead of the experience that poor people get, which right. is typically a sucky experience for all kinds of reasons, right? Which right. I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. But no, my, my question that's that, my question is totally different, is that, um, I mean, the regional thing seems a little bit over-determined because there's all kinds of reasons right. for under-provision in the South and the Midwest and Arkansas. So can you tell, I, I don't even know, is there a different point in, in history if you go back, you know, a decade, two decades, the war on poverty, at which, like now it's no surprise, right? A bunch of the South, certainly a bunch of the, the Southern Midwest, Arkansas, Mississippi, they don't want the federal money. They themselves from the state level are not going to provide to, even if there were a very capable set of nonprofits, they sure so wouldn't give them money to provide services to poor, poor people. And if you believe Arlie Hochschild and a bunch of other people, the poor people don't want those services anyway. And they don't, certainly don't want their governments providing it. And you could imagine a story in which the political preferences emerge because there's no lobby of organizations that do this. Or maybe the politics were always that way. I don't know. I mean, was there a point at which Mississippi was kind of like Massachusetts in terms of its willingness to write state checks to nonprofits to provide no, homeless shelters? No, and, and in fact, I, as I was doing this paper, I ran across something that I didn't know. It's a paper, a fairly recent paper that showed that the South actually had um, a substantially less money from the war on poverty because they didn't want it. They didn't in the want 60s and 70s, they 60s, didn't want it. 60s, 60s war on poverty. It's a, it's, um, I, I cite <laughs> it in the paper, and I hadn't ever seen that, but when I ran across it, I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I certainly know that there were, like Houston we see, uh, didn't want one of the main programs in the war on poverty. They eventually took model cities. Maybe it was community action program. I can't remember. But there, so there was more resistance in the South towards just doing these programs, yeah. which is why in part this kind of, you know, forceful federalism was so important because it allowed the federal government to just bypass it all and go, you know, right into these poor neighborhoods and say, we're going to, yeah. we're going to help you, uh, we're going to wipe all this away, we're going to help you set up organizations. So, but I mean, and the, the other thing is, you know, is the role of race in the South, it's, there's really is no public there's no strong public sector because anything you would do to poor pe for we'll poor to people, people would would yeah. you would have to deal with African American people. Whereas it's and it's not like the North was so you know um, open racially. I mean, there's histories of settlement houses and they really focused on you know white immigrants, not on African Americans. But basically, they created an infrastructure. And when the po their politics began to change, those organizations, I mean, the Catholic Charities doesn't, you know, serves all kind. I, I always found from this paper, I feel like I've become like a shill for Catholic Charities, which I really <laughs> don't mean to be, but it's, it's a type of organization that is an organization that can fulfill a lot of public purposes um, just because of its structure. So I would say, you know, I mean, I would trace these differences 
back to the progressive era. And you do see some, there are a few organizations that are still in existence in Atlanta and in Houston that were created during the progressive era. But the, because you didn't have that competition, there are these kind of classic progressive organizations, but then you didn't get a Catholic organization or a Jewish organization forming. And then another, you know, so you didn't have religious competition that in a way drove organizational creation in the Northeast and, and Midwest. And you this low equilibrium thing yeah. where you don't get the politics and you don't get the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a question. How do you ever break out of that low equilibrium? Well, they did once when the federal government intervened, and you can still see those organizations in, you know, in Phoenix and in, in Houston. They're still there. Although I think, and this I haven't had a chance to look at, but I was quite interested. In, you know, you could probably do it. It's just like get a list of all those um, organizations, you know, that were community action yeah, agencies, agencies created that time and see how well they survived in different places. Because a former student of mine, Sarah Recco, who you yeah. know, I know, she, she said, you know, you, and she's right, our southern cases, because we took the five largest from each region, don't have like North Carolina. They have two Texas and two uh, Florida and Atlanta. And, you know, there was a big progressive movement in North Carolina and a lot of organizational creation, but a lot of those organizations went out of existence because I've, you know, I've read a little bit about that history and I wonder if there was more of kind of a failure to thrive in those contexts than there was in the context that had more robust um, organizations. Now, the other thing is that when you have, like, I, I'll tell you the other thing, <laughs> this Atlanta person who's not there anymore, <laughs> but, you know, the other thing about Atlanta is that we went to the largest foundation, the Woodruff Foundation, that's the Pepsi money, and he, the student went to go interview them about what do they, you know, what do they do for low-income people, and he said, well, they, they didn't know what I was talking about, and they said, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. And so, you know, and of course the large foundations in Chicago, you know, the MacArthur Foundation, they do, you know, a certain amount of their money is for Chicago, it's for purposes for low-income people. So I, it got, and I, I wanted to do kind of a side project and say does it also, when you have that nonprofit sector, it can draw more local philanthropic money and it can draw also corporate philanthropy. And in the absence of it, that, um, other philanthropic money and cor corporate goes for something else and philanthropic money. So that you're kind of creating a whole ecosphere in places where you've got that strong nonprofit sector that affects how other actors engage. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's very different in, in a place like uh, Atlanta where it's so elite driven um, that, you know, they well, this is what I wanted to see, like, what I wanted to do, and I still might do it, is to look and see where do community foundation money go, how much of it goes to purposes for low-income people, and how much of it goes to things like high culture. Right. So, right. you know, is it being spent on things like, um, you know, high culture in some, in these right. places where you have a weaker nonprofit sector? I don't know the answer. I was trying to, I, I was going to get the data from the um, foundation center, and I still might do that, but.
You know, in Boston, uh, just from the Boston experience, it, it's not that it's elite-driven or not. It's very elite-driven in terms of yeah. I mean, the Boston Foundation is probably the, the least, and I'll even, even there. But the, the private money, the Bar Foundation, the, uh, Reebok, the Fireman Foundation, our fireman is the founder of Reebok, and Bar, which is the biggest foundation by far, is the, um, is the guy who created Media One or one of the cable, continental cable, um, in the top better. They're, you know, elite elites, but they're in this conversation with, with other elites so that the thing, a big part of the thing their philanthropy is about is eliminating homelessness or whatever is yeah, always, that, right. you know, they just wouldn't feel like they were good philanthropists unless they were participating in yeah. a MacArthur-Joyce-like program. And my, my suspicion is that in places where there isn't uh, an infrastructure in place to uh, Kind of get them, them into, into it, this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. That they would find other other kinds of things, or they just may be more persuaded by or other groups Seattle, that are. Right, yeah. you're going to go fix AIDS in Africa. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. The whole Silicon Valley thing is yeah. like, yeah, we're going to fix the world, but you know, we don't care if you have affordable housing around here. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>